Hello, film addicts. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the film medium as much as we do. It's a very special episode because our very own producer, Sullivan Harris, has joined us to talk about a movie that we have been longing to talk about for years. It's a long one, so strap in as Sullivan and I dissect in detail Scott Pilgrim versus The World. All right, very long-awaited episode of the film podcast today. Very special. We have our producer, Sullivan Harris, is here with us talking about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I honestly, I struggle to think of another person who's been affected or influenced by another movie like you have with Scott Pilgrim. I would say that is a pretty fair assessment. Although Casey Clark probably has been affected by this movie just as much as me, and he's probably going to be upset that we're doing this episode without him. Uh, So Casey, (laughs) you're here with us in spirit. I love you, brother. (laughs) Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, (laughs) uh, I remember, so we met freshman year of college, SUNY Broom, and in Alyssa Meech's intro to filmmaking class she was on the show a few weeks ago and uh good episode definitely go check it out the place beyond the pines uh we i remember seeing like all of your projects with this crazy editing sync to music and it was just so stylized and at this point i hadn't really picked up on a lot of director's styles and uh it was still a lot to learn for me about directing and what a director could really do in terms of the film genre and then i started watching edgar wright you know movies and i think edgar wright is one of the most you know recognizable um and maybe like well-liked director in like a lot of film schools and film classes and uh when i was watching your early films especially like the lost and found video that you made is very very influenced by edgar wright and is just so well done and it's there's remnants of that uh, of Scott Pilgrim in your work like what what does Edgar Wright mean to you uh I mean you you probably said it best yourself he's just one of those directors that has a style that is just like com- completely unique I I think a lot of people have tried to replicate it but it's one of those styles that you can't ever really replicate one-to-one I mean it, it, it's he's like someone that film students talk about all the time you know like when you ask any film student like give me your top five directors it's like Tarantino and like Edgar Wright and Martin Scorsese like it, and he's up there with all these legendary directors and to me um, I love him so much because of his hands-on approach uh, with editing his movies. I mean, a lot of directors have a lot of influence in the editing room, but that usually only goes as far as like, you know, cuts and uh, making things flow. But him from the, the top of uh, conceptualizing all of his movies, he has all these ideas for how he's going to move the movie along scene by scene by scene using not only like, cuts but using effects and using like sounds and music and uh, references to other media and so I think another thing you hear film students talk about all the time is they'll be like you know I 
didn't really know that movies could be made like this until I saw this movie or a movie by this director. And for you, that's probably any movie written by Sorkin. Yeah, for sure. And for me, that was Edgar Wright. You know, I saw Scott Pilgrim was the first movie I saw by him. And I was like, wait, you can do things like put whams and like blur lines in there like comic books. I didn't know you could do that. Like, that's so much fun. And like you said, I I, I did a lot of that stuff in uh, my early college work just because I was experimenting with, oh, my God, I can have fun making movies. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Put me on the spot. Please tell the audience the story of what to do. Please tell them what that is. <sighs> okay. Um, what to do is a web series that I conceptualize in like maybe seventh grade middle school that uh, I worked on all through middle school, all through high school, uh, but never actually made. I mean, it's something that stemmed directly from Scott Pilgrim. Like I was super influenced by it and I, and I wanted to like tell a story in a similar way. So I, I came up with this idea that's basically just like a high school that's um, kind of has similar surreal elements where it's like people are inside a video game and they're leveling up and there's this whole monarchy in the school where the bullies have taken over and have like stolen the crown of the school. The details are important, but um, when I when I got into college and I started actually making movies and shorts and stuff and realized that, hey, I can start doing some of this stuff now, I was like, well, why don't I take a summer and just film one episode of this show that I always wanted to do as a kid, you know, just for my younger self and maybe to have as a portfolio piece, which I do still use some of it as a portfolio piece. And so I got a bunch of actors together, which are my friends, um, Noah McMullen, who was on the Dingles and Donuts podcast was in it. Um, and a bunch of other people, I got them all together and I was like, Hey, let's make this thing over the summer. We wrote out this whole huge schedule. Uh, we had the scripts all printed out. We did table reads. We did the whole process as professionally as we could. And, uh, it was pretty epic. You come into the story though, in a very interesting way. I won't name names, but, um, I had casted a fellow in a role for the show and he was super excited about it, super jazzed to be in it. And then the day before we started shooting, or maybe two days, um, he unfortunately got in a car crash. <laughs> and he could not film his scenes. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was very sad. Um, he is 100% okay now. But uh, I had to find someone to fill his shoes last second. And so I was like, how do I remember this dude from my, my film class who seemed to be good at acting, seemed to be good at making movies. And so I called you up and that was like really one of the first times we had like a personal connection, you know, a little summon summon pop up between us. <laughs> That's very true. Thinking back, it's like 
we hadn't really worked on any on each other's projects, you know, that entire year. I mean, we just knew of each other from the class and, uh, you know, you had asked me about being in your band and, uh, it, like that didn't pan out. Well, yeah. Cause there, there was all sorts of like, there were a lot of great people in our film classes at broom. Not all of them were very talented. And so <laughs> the few, the handful of us that, actually kind of like knew what we were doing and had a good groove, just naturally kind of uh, gravitated towards each other eventually. Very true. Very true. That's where this whole uh, company came from, you know, basically. Uh, and it's interesting. I mean, I've seen, you know, most of it, the episode that we was never fully finished. Yeah. Uh, the end of that story is that it's lost to time and I never finished it. Uh, but hopefully one day I'll pull out the scraps from my hard drive and put it together. <laughs> and I I bring this up because I was thinking back to uh, to that um, a lot, like thinking back about the script and the scenes that we got to do and just realizing how many, and re-watching the movie today, how many connections there were between Scott Pilgrim and that. You know, like there was Noah's character was very much like, Scott and just kind of hanging out with his friends and everyone had their own kind of idiosyncratic tendencies. Uh, mm. I like my character was like the head bully was very much like Chris, um, Chris Evans character in this. And I, I think that that's kind of one of the powers of this movie um, in that it brings out, it's a very clear influence on so many people and it leaves a lasting impression and that's kind of something that like you wouldn't normally expect from a movie like this in that what I mean, this movie's kind of like a Trojan horse movie. Like it disguises itself as this big uh, like video game-esque fighting. You know, it's based on the graphic novel series by Brian Lee O'Malley. And it's looking like this really cool adventure, crazy over-the-top movie. But there's actually a lot to take away from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, what what you're saying right now just makes me think about the trailers for this movie that were very strange. Do you remember the trailers at all? Not vividly. They were, like, really hyper. They had, like, music from The Prodigy in them, and they were, like, cut together really weirdly, and you couldn't get any idea what this thing was about from the trailer. Little old me thought that the trailer was awesome. Me back in 2009 Ten. or whatever, before it came out, uh -huh. uh, I thought the trailer was awesome. And that's what made me want to go see it. But yeah, it's, it's, I, I think that goes to say with any Edgar Wright movie too, though, you know, like mm -hmm. Hot Fuzz, which was a previous episode on the podcast. Indeed. Go check it out with Chris Rowe, who's also on the Ravnik Avengers. Um, like, it's the same thing with that movie. Like, it, on the surface, it's this kind of uh, crazy action movie that's cut together super fast and there's intrigue and mystery, but there is like that underlying uh, like heart and message inside of it. That's like almost an indie movie at its core. Yeah, I think that's like kind of one of the things about Edgar Wright that I think obviously that jumps out at people is that he's just a good example of how like so many different components can come together. And he did it like he got to be known as one of the great, you know, modern filmmakers so fast. 
you know, with Shaun of the Dead came out in like 04 or five or something like that. And he's only made five movies and like they're he's already regarded as one of the, like the, you know, the modern greats. An interesting tidbit I just read. Um, I just read an interview with Brian Lee O'Malley, like you said, who wrote the comic books. And he was saying that the the producers of the movie Scott Pilgrim were looking at him immediately after Shaun of the Dead came out. Um, it was like around the exact same time that they optioned the books to Universal and the producers were like, that's the guy we want just like immediately after Shaun of the Dead came out. That's like perfect timing. And that's like, it just, I think they made obviously the right choice. Um, before we get into the movie, I, I want to ask what, because uh, you've read the comic books. Yes, and I, I just I reread them a couple weeks ago too. Oh, so look at that. Fresh on my mind. Uh, and that's a whole other side of things. Um, I know they were filming this movie before like the last book came out or mm -hmm. something yeah. along those lines. And how does it compare, do you think, to um, to the movie? How are they, how is it different? How are they similar? What do you think of the overall comics compared to the, to the movie itself? Well, I will stand by this take until the day I die. And that is that uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world is the best book to film adaptation of all time. That's uh, a good, that's a, that's a hot take, my friend. <laughs> it, well, I mean, maybe not necessarily in content, but in the fact that, I mean, Scott Pilgrim had like a rabid fan base, like people that, as you know, people that like this series, they like this series and uh -huh. um, like it's everything to the fans. And, to have this movie come out and have it be as different as it is in some respects, in some respects, it's the exact same, but, uh, it's so different in a lot of ways. And the fans of the book love the movie just as much as the books. The first like 30 minutes of the book up to where he fights Matthew Patel is almost like shot for shot the exact same as the book. Literally the first shot of the movie is the first panel of the book. And from there it's, it just keeps doing that. And then how I've come to describe it is that every book after that, it gets 50% uh, less of the content in there. So like there's about 50% of book two in the movie and then about 25% of book three in the movie and then so on and so forth until the end where it just completely diverts because the book wasn't even out yet. But what's always impressive to me is that if you're a fan of the movies, you also love the books. And if you're a fan of the books, you also love the movies. And I think that's super rare these days. Yeah, very much so. And, and it's especially impressive because the movie does divert so much towards the middle and towards the end. And usually when that happens, the fans get all crazy. But in this case, they, they love it just as much. Yeah, I, it's, this is one of those movies where like, it sucks that it didn't initially get the reputation that it has now. Like, it took a while. It comes out in 2010, has a budget of like $60 million and makes 10 million in the opening weekend. It garners about 100 million later on like after overseas sales and but it it takes a while for this movie to kind of get cuz did it I make, feel like it, I I I thought it only made like 50 million worldwide. 
it was definitely not uh, a huge success regardless yeah. of the exact numbers. Well, I mean, I and, think it's it, it is considered like one of the top five box office bombs of all time. I don't know. Do you think that has to do with the marketing of it or is it like I think it absolutely has to do with the marketing of it. When in doubt, it's the marketing. When in doubt, it's always the marketing. I mean, I think it also has to do with um, like we kind of touched on before was how this movie has a lot of layers to it and the layers are kind of weird. Like Uh like on top, it's action. Below that, it's video games. Below that. It's like all these different things and then hidden under everything. It's like an indie romance movie. And so if someone just like told me the plot of this movie, like if you pull up on Wikipedia, it says uh, it stars Michael Sarah, Scott Pilgrim, a slacker musician who must battle the seven evil exes of his newest girlfriend, Ramona Flowers. Like if someone just told me that today i'd be like what the hell are you talking about i Uh never want to see whatever the hell that is like that sounds so stupid you know like it doesn't it it sounds so weird in concept and it is so weird in practice it is and i also feel like you tell someone that and there's like a lot of context that they're missing yeah exactly and it's not like i mean like we know that you know we talk about you know, when we've talked about Birdman or Place Beyond the Pines, they're movies that are better not knowing really anything going in, and it works for those movies. Mm-hmm. But here, with this movie, I feel like you should, like, because it's a bigger budget movie and it's trying to garner, you know, with audiences of people who love video games and people who love, um, you know, the romance stuff and people who love this and this and this. There's, like, so many different components coming in. It almost feels like you're they're trying to let you know something like about the movie, but you're not getting a whole lot. And there's so many layers and like information that you get. Like and also in it. with a movie like this, it must've been extremely difficult to decide who they were going to market to specifically, you know, like do we yeah. market to the, to the indie romance audience? Do we market to video game fans? Do we market who, like who are we even trying to sell this to? Either way, it's like you want to try and get it into a mainstream audience. And that can be extremely difficult with movies like this because a lot of mainstream audiences, like a lot of or mainstream audience members, they want to know what they're getting into, yeah. and which is totally fine. But with a movie like this, how do you not, prepare it, them? It's not easy to sum it all up like mm-hmm. as quickly as you uh, would think. Uh, I w- so I said it comes out 2010 before we get into you know, everything that's going on in this movie. Uh, I want to talk about briefly about 2000, the 2010s as a decade. Um, oh, we're that's fastly a, approaching that's a big topic. Yeah. We're fastly approaching the end of it. Uh, and it's gotten a lot of negative, uh, <laughs> negative, uh, criticisms for the decade as a whole for movies it's definitely had its up years 2014 um and it's definitely had some very low years like 2011 but uh like overall it's kind of a mixed bag year and this this is a movie that starts the year off 2010 specifically or 2010 as the decade 2010 is the decade okay and I'm like curious, like obviously this one is kind of a standout. It's going to be a standout of the decade for like years to come because of how much, uh, you know, cult following it has. Well, what is your feeling of 
the 2010s is a decade in film because there's just so many different things going on. We're kind of, I feel like sometimes it's like, yeah. And then other times it's just like, what are we doing? Like, I, I feel like this year, 2019 has been kind of like a kind of middle of the road year overall. Whereas like, you know, past decades have just been like, bam, 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 bam. You know, obviously everyone loves like the seventies as like a great decade. And I also really love um, like the nineties. Like, what is your opinion on this whole decade? Like, what does it have? Like, what is this decade going to be known for? I think the 2010s, at least to me, have been this 50-50 split between uh, the movie industry becoming hyper-commercialized and uh, hyper-uncommercialized at the same time, if that makes any sense. Because it seems like half the movies that have come out have been like, Disney has acquired this company and now they're rebooting this franchise and it's going to make a billion dollars and everyone's going to go see it. And all that matters uh, is the numbers that are rolling in. But at the same time, um, we are seeing indie movies and smaller budget movies uh, starting to make some real money at the box office. And um, I, I, I think this movie starting out is very... Uh, it, it was very like telling of the future because it is like kind of this half blockbuster, half smaller budget movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 2010, I mean, like, what can you say? Like, we didn't live through the 70s. And while in retrospect, it may seem like all these incredible movies came out in that year. I mean, there were probably just as many, like the ratio of stinkers to gems is probably the same as it is today. Uh, but I do think the 2010s, a lot of filmmakers are just kind of having fun, be it in a space where a huge company is just trying to make money or in a space where they don't have a budget at all and they're just doing everything they can with that budget. And it's interesting to see those two different, like very different worlds of filmmaking just kind of fighting for relevancy. And this is also the decade, obviously, the rise of superhero movies and blockbusters, you know, couldn't be more blockbusting than yeah, oh my God. You know, like, like ever. And again, but this we, movie, we got Chris Evans, we've got, yeah. uh, we've got uh, Brie Larson in it. We've got mm-hmm. uh, like ever like uh, Brandon Routh, who I think, yeah. was he Superman like 2008? So I guess that doesn't really count. But Well, like, yeah, he's he was Superman Returns, but you got like a lot of big you know superhero names that like we know now wait and did you see that uh instagram story i sent you the other day uh brian leo malley just posted onto his uh instagram story the other day and said that robert pattinson read for the role of lucas lee when they were casting oh really so there's another superhero uh from the 2010s that is uh, was almost in this movie there That's you all go. I have to say about that. <laughs> to kind of go off of what you said earlier, this is also obviously the decade of social media. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has an outlet to voice their opinion. And I think the other thing about this movie that was so kind of foretelling for the rest of the decade is that, like we said, it didn't get as much love until a little while later. And I think that could be said for a lot of movies that have come out. Just 
through every year of this decade. And like we're so quick to react and we're so we have to get our opinion out as fast as we can. And like how we automatically feel is like how we are going to feel forever. We have this mentality mm-hmm. where like, I feel like we should, you know, take time, take things in really kind of digest, be not like, be, don't be afraid to, to take the risk or try and have a different experience in a movie that you think you may not like, but maybe you will like, you know, we have to give more yeah. chances, but and we're so, I think that's happening. I mean, that's what I was trying to say about like this decade as a whole with indie movies becoming more viable. I mean, movies like uh, La La Land and Moonlight are like, and Ladybird are becoming bona fide blockbusters nowadays. Uh, and so I, I think it would be super interesting uh, for this to see what would happen if this movie were released today. I don't know if it would go any differently, but with the way the audience reacts to movies now, I, I would like to see how it would perform in 2019. It definitely would. Uh, it would be interesting to see it for sure. Uh, with that being said, let's get into it. I know I you have to, a lot of thoughts. I want to get into it. First of all, tell me what you told me. Uh, tell the audience what you told me when you said you wanted to do this movie. You told the last time you watched it, what was that experience like? It was one of the top 10 experiences of my entire life. Uh, Sullivan Harris took a pilgrimage. Eh? Yeah. To Toronto, Canada um, for the 15th anniversary of the Scott Pilgrim volume one. And uh, they had a whole a whole shebang going on up there. They did a screening of the movie. Um, there was a whole after party. And the coolest part about it was Brian Lee O'Malley was actually there. And he introduced the movie. And he was, like, hanging around the party. Um, but I hadn't actually seen Scott Pilgrim in theaters until last month. Uh, I missed it when it came out. I wanted to see it so bad. But my parents were one of the people that were like, or I guess two of the people that were like, what the hell is this? I have no interest in seeing this. Like this trailer is so weird. I'm not going to take you to see that. And so I never got to see it in theaters and I hated my parents uh, forever because of it until (laughs) until they bought it for me on Blu-ray the second it came out and I got to watch it in my home. But I've always wanted to see it in theaters and it has always been like a very... Uh, like it, it, it hurts that I never got to see it in theaters. And so getting to go and watch it uh, with Brian Lee O'Malley, the creator of the series with a room just packed full of people who love it as much as I do. And in 35 millimeter, <laughs> which ain't too shabby, uh, uh-uh. was an incredible experience. I, like I'd never, I've never watched the movie and had, other people laugh at it with me, but I was with an audience that loved it so much that like we were laughing all together. Every single line, people were cheering, people were singing along to the music and it was just, it was pretty phenomenal. But I mean, it made me be like, I, I have to come onto the podcast and talk about this movie finally. And a good choice that you made. I love theater experiences like that. Even just move with movies that are like, where everyone's on the same page. And like, I've always talked about how at this point in my life, you know, seeing when I saw Avengers Endgame, that was the greatest theater experience I've ever had. Just because 
200 other Marvel fans, as big as a Marvel fan as I am, were just freaking out and yelling and screaming and cheering and just crying together. Uh, but like another great experience that I don't think uh, is really uh, maybe not given as much love as I give it is kind of when you go see like just a, like a horror movie on a Friday night, like the, the kind of shitty, bad PG-13 horror movies with a bunch of other like teenagers or college students in the theater. And you all just kind of get the same you know idea like, wow, this is a this is not very good, but damn, is it fun? And you all kind of, they'll start either laughing. Like I always love to tell the story. There's a movie that came out in like 2012, this really bad horror movie with Jessica Chastain called mama. And there was a part where a character was killed by mama and it was quiet for a second. And the guy in the theater just goes, well, sucks for that guy. (laughs) And we all just start like laughing our ass off. And then later on, a character who we were supposed to hate then died and everyone in the theater just started clapping. Like just any theater experience where we're all just like, let's have fun. It's one thing if like, you know, obviously everyone's like talking or just like not paying attention. That's kind of annoying. But like if we're all like, yeah, let's, let's make, this is a fun experience. You know what? Let's, let's relax a little bit. It's going to be, it's great. You mentioned Endgame and like, I when I left Endgame for the third time, I was like, "Am I never gonna feel this way in a movie theater again after Endgame leaves theaters?" And I was very worried about that. But uh, the, that that screening of Scott Pilgrim kind of hit the exact same uh, emotional resonance within me. And now I don't think I'll ever have that experience again. And <laughs> life is meaningless, and why do I even keep going? But. <laughs> It is incredible when you when you can be in a theater with an audience where everyone is on that same page of just like this. Like we're here. We're here for the next one and a half to two hours. We're here together. Let's be here together. Yeah, it's that's the power of movies. That's the power of movie theaters and why we need to go out to the movies more and to be able to have those experiences with other people with strangers nonetheless. And it's yeah. like, a, it's a connecting mm-hmm. factor. Um, all right. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. When I was watching this movie, I was like, Scott Pilgrim has to be at least one of the most recognizable names in like movies from this, this century. It's such a good name. It's a great name. It's very recognizable. No one else has that name. It's like Scott. Okay. But then Pilgrim, like those two mm-hmm. together, like is just a name you don't hear anywhere else but in this movie it's like just such an easily recognizable character and also just attributed to the like in my opinion career defining performance by michael Sarah, who is just phenomenal i mean i've always loved michael Sarah just in general and i think he just knocks it way out of the park in this movie he's so lovable he's so just so relatable too He's quirky. He's flawed. He makes some dumb choices. But I mean, obviously that has to do with his character arc, which we'll talk about in a bit. But there's just that this performance is just someone who none of us have really met per se, but we've all been there. We've we've all been him at some point, I feel, because I see myself and him in like various situations throughout this movie, like all the time. You just you just unloaded a lot that I want to talk about. Um, but <laughs> I think that Michael Sarah's performance as Scott Pilgrim is probably the defining example of Edgar Wright and the whole crew of the movie completely changing something from the comics and it 
still being received just as well. Uh, his character in the movie is the polar opposite from his character in the comics. In the comics, he is extremely chaotic, um, very just like stupid and almost ditzy. Uh, but I, I think why it still translates is because Edgar Wright understood what the character was supposed to represent. And he did his, and, and he he had Michael Sarah, who is an incredible talent. He saw his strengths and he saw how he could weave that into the the same purpose as the character from the comics, even if they didn't do uh, the same kind of characterization, which I think is great. Michael Sarah is so good. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Everyone in this cast is great. Also, how many movies do we like? Can you think of that has a bass playing protagonist? I can't think of another one. Exactly. And God, this movie like started off like I I have an undying obsession with the Rickenbacker four thousand three. Now I like I can't get that thing out of my mind. It's just the coolest looking guitar of all time. Really? Yeah. But I mean, you're saying you relate to Scott Pilgrim, right? And I think like my favorite part of this movie, for sure, is how um it, it it's about growing up it's about maturing um it's yeah. about becoming a better person and what what's incredible to me is watching this movie at different points in my life and getting so much more out of it because when i watched it for the first time i was pretty young and i was like scott pilgrim is so fucking cool this dude is yeah. awesome. He's got it made. He doesn't have to pay rent. He's like living in this awesome <laughs> little hole in the ground. He plays in a band. Like he, he's got the life. This is incredible. And like, as I grew up, I was like, wait, hold on. Maybe that's, is he not cool? And then now, like I completely understand the point of the movie, which is that he is a terrible, terrible person. And like, <laughs> he's going on this journey to become a better person, not just to become more awesome with me like i i think that what's great about this movie is that to kind of go off of that the tone is extremely consistent throughout and even through moments of like that are supposed to be sad or that you think like what did he do is like the fact that he cheats on his girlfriend is like what the fuck but it's handled in such a way that you're still on board with everything yeah, right like, like it's <laughs> not it's so self-aware it's not too serious it's hysterical it's so quirky and odd it's such an odd experience like the whole movie you're just like what is they're making a lot of choices and a lot of things that they don't necessarily fully reference but the movie is completely self-aware of it like when they have like the ring or when you know so, like my one of my favorite gags is when Ramona shows up at the party and <laughs> Scott goes to talk to his friend and he goes have you seen a woman with hair like this and just holds up a random drawing that he yeah. has it's just like it's so weird but it's so consistent and that makes it unique and all of these choices are obviously very deliberate played for comedy but set up this really good tone of the world and i think that also (laughs) this may sound kind of weird like helps that it's set um in canada well yeah i was just gonna say like obviously i was in canada for like maybe 12 i was in toronto canada for maybe like 12 hours tops 
But even in being there just for 12 hours, like I felt that same tone that the movies have and that the books have. And like, so now I completely attribute that to the location, like just being there. It it just has like this, this feeling like this essence of just like people just act this way and everything just feels like this and the movies and the, the, the movie and the books like really capture that vibe of just being in Toronto. Yeah, it's and the fact that it's like obviously always snowy and just like it just looks like a really cold mm-hmm. like place to be. It's like this entire world like of the movie, the world of the movie is not anything that most audiences, obviously more so in the U.S., are not really going to. Uh, are, are not familiar with and it feels and, like a fantasy location almost at least that's how i see it yeah like well, you don't really see you just see like a couple locations and then sometimes you might get like an establishing shot of somewhere and it reminds me of lord of the rings where like characters are just always walking through woods but mm-hmm. they'll mention something like, oh, but this is the woods of Deliftafar. And you're like, okay, I guess this is the woods of Deliftafar. Like the characters in Scott Pilgrim will be like, hey, let's go to Pizza Pizza. And I'm like, okay, sure. This is Pizza Pizza, whatever. Like I've never heard of that. It's in, this seems like some crazy like other world to me. It also kind of seems like the whole movie takes place within like just a three or four block radius from each from every single location. Like yeah. where the the fact that, you know, the house that Scott grew up in is right across the street from his current apartment. Mm-hmm. And then like Pizza Pizza is like seems like it's just right down the street from there. The school is probably just on the other side of the house. And like all of these places just seems like such a small, isolated area that's easy to get around. And that also kind of helps and we can let's just get into Edgar Wright's direction and some of the choices that he makes with like transitions and mm-hmm. the cuts and like the gags that will go through, like especially when, you know, p- characters will start a sentence and then it'll the sentence will continue or the conversation will continue in another location. Like the my favorite one is when they're like, where are we going? And then it's like in the house and then they cut and it's there outside. And whilst like I told you a hundred times, we're going to a party and they're walking down the street now. I mean like every single transition in this movie, there's something like there, there's not a scene transition that just happens. Every scene transition has a bit. Uh-huh. There's a lot of bits. <laughs> um, and there's so it's really hard to describe the comedy uh, within, you know, within the movie. Like, it's not a lot of comedy that you could reenact. It's like, it's not necessarily a lot of quotable lines per se. A lot of it is situational and in technical editing. But, you know, played so well by the actors and it's just the timing is great. And like, my favorite joke in the whole thing is like, you know, oh, is Scott here? Oh, he just left and he dives out yeah. the window. Like, you just so don't good. see that coming. And mm-hmm. it's like, works on so many different levels. It's like, there's either the fact that they repeat lines a lot. They'll like kind of uh, say the same thing a few times in a row for comedic effects, especially when Scott's nervous or when, you know, visual things like the ring or the, the meter that goes from uh, doesn't get it, got it. 
and like in Scott's yeah. head when he realizes that like just very that's the one thing that makes it so it's one thing that makes it so engaging it's just so visually appealing and it is something for us to watch as opposed to something that we're being told it's literally like we are taking taken through this world and you know taken along on this journey but it's so fun and exhilarating you know well i think i think part of it is you can definitely feel in this movie that when they sat down and were storyboarding the scenes and probably even back to when they were writing the scenes, they really sat there and thought, okay, like we have this scene where Scott walks in after like a night out and he's telling Wallace how he got to first base. Now, yeah, we don't really have a bit for this scene. Like, what can we do with this? And like, they just sat there and they just thought and thought and thought until they came up with, well, what if we did like Seinfeld bass guitar, you know, like, why don't we try that? And, and like that worked. And it's like, why don't we have Scott do this like one second quick change of, of outfit. And like, you can tell that they just spent so long thinking so thoroughly about every one of these scenes, thinking about how, like, what can they add to it? to elevate it to the level of the rest of the movie and like it it works out so well because it it's a movie that you can watch like i've how many times have i've seen it i can't count like i i have no idea how many times i've seen it but every time i watch it i notice something new there's not a single viewing of this movie that i've had where i didn't notice a new uh like maybe text box in the background or a just a little visual gag or a, maybe even a line i didn't catch before and it like i just love that like it, it it's endlessly rewatchable because you're always picking up new things and that kind of goes uh you know hand in hand with the attention to detail that Edgar Wright put into all of the stylistic choices and just like the fact that, you know, you're watching it and there's stuff like components of there's obviously there's punk rock, there's the relationship stuff, there's um, comic books and retro arcade games, yeah. all kind of infused together stuff that you like, you wouldn't really think would go together. Like you wouldn't really expect music by Beck to be put mm -hmm. in with like a street fighter fighter game. Like you wouldn't really think that they would mix, but this, uh, they're just, it's just done and planned out so well that it's unlike really anything that you've seen before. And it doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't feel too jarring. It's the fact that it, everything is so set up like well, and it's so fast. And in, like I said, engaging that, it all just meshes together really, really well. And just the, the story in and of itself is so crazy and it not necessarily something we haven't seen before, but still like an odd concept. Someone could have taken this, this series and made it, you know, kind of a little bit more toned down and like either a mini series or something. And it would have been, not as stylized or fast paced or anything as this movie is because obviously they crunch it down to an hour 52. But if it was like, like done by anybody else, it wouldn't have had all of these intricacies. It wouldn't have had all, it wouldn't have had the same pace. It just would have been completely different. And I, I just love that they got so many things right. Like the style of the fight scenes and the music just fits in like really, really well. 
uh, it, like I can't praise it enough. Yeah, I love how every like it, it goes back to what I was talking about uh, about the scenes. Every fight scene has its own like thing to it. It has its own catch or its own like handicap. Every fight has a bit that is completely different from the last one. Like the first fight with Matthew Patel, we have a Bollywood musical number with a Kung Fu fight and like a, a, a poetry battle. And then the Lucas Lee fight, we is more like a straight up kind of brawler. And then we have like a, we have the bass battle. We have the uh, double battle of the band, like amp versus amp every, like every single, everything is so, is so different and unique and uh, it makes like all the X's stand out from each other and it makes it very not boring to watch. One, something that's always stuck in my mind is Aly- Alyssa Misha, the previous guest on the podcast and our old professor. When we were talking to her about the movie once, she was like, yeah, I love that movie, but like nothing happens in the middle, like 40 minutes of it. And that's always stood out to me because... It's kind of true. Nothing really happens in the middle of 40 minutes of it, but you're still completely on board with it all because Edgar Wright takes like this scene with with uh, um, Lucas Lee and he's like, all right, what can we do? We can have him uh, like we can have him do the fake out of being nice. We can have him huck Scott into Casaloma. We can have him uh, have his stunt doubles come out and fight for him. And like, there's just always so much going on and it's, it never feels overbearing. I don't think. No, I agree. And also just the fact that the characters are so they play off of each other so well and are such they they are just, like literal characters they're such weird odd people like from the opening the fact that right when they're talking about how scott is dating a 17 year old high school girl named knives chow Mm -hmm. and then there's a guy named steven stills and (laughs) young neil who's just like he's the total burnout of the group but is like just so funny and um oh what's the uh, do I know what my hottest take of this movie is? Huh? I think Johnny Simmons is the best performance by and large in the whole movie as young Neil. Yeah, really? Wow. Because he doesn't do much, but every single line he delivers just like completely floors me. Like when, when Knives comes to band practice, she's like, what do you play? And he's like, oh, Zelda, Tetris. That's a big question, you know, and like the he punched the highlights out of her hair and like when, when Sex bob is playing and he like sings the wrong words to the song, like he doesn't do much or like even the scene in the party where he's just in the background of like almost every shot, just like kind of standing there staring at the ceiling with this big doofy look on his face. He's so good. Yeah, he is really, really great. And just that like, he's given yeah he's he's given so little but like he does a lot with it and i i, I should just like i, I just want to name some of the people in the cast in this please movie. do so this movie has the you got michael sarah mary elizabeth weinstead winstead uh kieran calkin anna kendrick allison pill aubrey plaza jason schwartzman uh johnny simmons uh chris evans brandon routh brie larson um may whitman and Bill Hader as the voice that we hear in the as the um, the video game voice. That's a lot of fucking people. 
Yeah. I think and, um, Aubrey Plaza is another standout. I think uh-huh. she's incredible and like an incredible translation from the book. And uh, also, Anna Mae Kendrick Whitman. is. Where did they pull Mae Whitman from? Like, when's the last time she was in a live action movie and she just well, shows up? What's really funny to me is that she was in Arrested Development uh, as Michael Sarah's girlfriend for oh, like yeah. a, a part of the third season and then she comes back and obviously she be, she's become you know she's become Mae Whitman as a big star uh and well I don't know if I would say big star she's in a lot of she's she has her own sitcom on on uh, she does? NBC yeah she's serious? got a show yeah Wait, what's her show on NBC it's called good girls it's all about uh her and no shit. uh yeah my, my mom watches it really likes it um but she was also in like perks being a wallflower and uh I will say the one of the weirdest, the weirdest Mae Whitman moment that I've ever seen was when I was flipping through the, uh, my mom and I both really liked the show Chopped and on Chopped Jr. One time, apparently she was a guest judge and I was like, what is Mae Whitman doing out here? (laughs) Like, this is so weird. I love Chopped. Uh, but I, uh, everyone that like everyone is a different seems very different in character wise. Like they each have their own thing. Uh, I, I love, 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 um, Anna Kendrick as Stacy. Uh, so good. So funny. Um, and obviously Mary, I, I'm a huge Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan. Uh, she, I, I don't think this is her best performance, but it is a fucking great performance. Uh, we, what do you, you know, think is her best performance? I don't know what her best performance is. I have to, I have to go back and rethink that, but she's, I, mean, I, so, I agree though. She's just, just her, um, like her presence is perfect for what the character needs and like her ability to just like stand there and look super cool is rival to none. So, I mean, and, and that's, that's all she really needs to do, but she, she does bring a lot more to it than that with literally any hair color. Like she just looks so badass and is so, um, like classic example of the trope, the manic pixie dream girl. Um, and this movie, I mean, plays a lot with the trope, but she's just like the poster child for that as someone who shows, you know, the main character that there's more to life, uh, than what they have right now. And obviously is the person who leads Scott down this road of the seven evil exes. We should just talk about how this, you know, the the actual story of the movie is set up because, I mean, like we said, it can be a little difficult to explain, but, you know, it's just like she's working at Amazon and uh, Scott's dating Knives Chow and then automatically just falls in love with uh, with Ramona Flowers, again, recognizable name, ends up when they start dating, realizing he has to fight seven ex-boyfriends of Ramona's, like physically fight them like Street Fighter style. And again, just that idea alone is so strange and unique. And it's just handled in such a way that even still, as the movie goes on, you're kind of not really expecting it. Like, even if you know the movie, it starts off kind of like, you know, the more comedic aspect and then the fighting stuff happens. You're just like, whoa, like you just totally set back. Like my favorite scene when the um, Lucas Lee fight happens, that is just done 
so well and so over the top, like an action movie, like he's supposed to be in mm-hmm. that. It's just, uh, it's still like, I've seen it four or five times now. It's still just like kind of completely sidelines you. I think, well, my, my favorite is probably Matthew Patel just because of how many turns it takes. Like the first turn, obviously him crashing through the ceiling and being like, let's fight. Um, that's an incredible intro what's happening and then they just start like kung fu fighting and they have like the the like kung fu dust coming off of them every time they hit and there's these over the top shots of them spinning around and you like barely get a chance to catch your breath before they're like hey ramona what's up and then we go into a animated comic book flashback and then yeah. you're like, wait, what's going on now? And then before you get a chance to catch your breath there, we cut back to reality and we're in a Bollywood musical number. He just starts singing. And even Anna Kendrick's in an incredible moment in the movie is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then th- now they're shooting fireballs. There's demon hipster women and people are getting exploded. And like, it's just like it it sets you up so much for like you have no idea what you're getting into like maybe you thought you knew from like the first couple minutes what kind of movie this was going to be like just erase that all from your mind and don't even try to guess what's coming next because we will surprise you and they consistently do so from there and then when uh envy shows up you know well, that's should, like a, can, uh, I, I know this isn't really the format but can we we should probably just go one by one through these fights even if we just touch on them really quickly because that's they fair. are such okay. a big part of the movie and there is so much like there's so much work that went into each one like the Matthew Patel fight is probably the main uh one I look at when I say I notice something new every time because there's so much like with the little pops when he punches someone and like there's a scene where Matthew Patel is just in the middle of the shot and Scott's like punching him in the face he punches him like three times and he hits him once and this giant like video game text crack appears behind him punches him again then the crack like kind of shatters a little bit like glass and then punches him again and it completely shatters and falls to the floor. And then what's wild is it cuts to a wide shot next and you see that uh, that shattered text like crumbling onto the ground still. Like so much work was put into all of this. Yeah, there's there's so much going on. And like I said, there's like, um, <clears throat> it's just such a good intro because it literally just, it comes out of nowhere. Like she warned us about it, but like, again, we're just like, what like same mm-hmm. with scott like he doesn't really kind of you know take it as seriously as he probably should have and he just comes blasting through scott pilgrim you know just down mm-hmm. and in and the fact that i love when like she starts telling the story and the whole uh audience and everything stops and the spotlight moves to her like everything stops on a dime and just turns to listen to remote flowers tell this story yeah the spotlight goes on her and everything <laughs> love that and then before that, another one of my favorite moments of the movie is when uh, everyone kind of shows up at the gig and like Knives Chow shows up and Ramona is there and everyone just kind of does like these whip looks at each other. Yeah. And like the camera will like zoom from one person to the other. And then like the last one is Wallace looking over at Jimmy. <laughs> Fucking Wallace. So then the next one that he has to fight is Lucas Lee. Uh, played by Chris Evans, who is just a madman. Is He's, everyone uh, the best performance in this movie? Because I think everyone is the best performance in this movie. Is there a bad I, performance or even like a good performance in this movie? 
there's not a bad performance for sure. Like that everyone like, is on top of their A game. Everyone is doing like there are times where I just hate Kieran Culkin, but because he's such a douchebag, but he's supposed to be. So he is doing like his job and is doing it really, really well. But he's mm. like everyone is just so great. Like Chris Evans in this movie is literally the caricature that he didn't want to become that he almost yeah. became because of Fantastic yeah. Four. Like uh-huh. literally is the biggest fucking meathead, um, like worst crazy coked up version of Johnny Storm from Fantastic Four. And that's Chris Evans in this movie. It just plays him so well. Uh, like just like talks like this the entire time. It's just like just trying to be the cool guy and literally everything. What I love about the Lucas Lee fight is it's kind of the first one that is that doesn't stop. Like it, it really doesn't like the Matt Patel fight had some exposition that they had to weave in there. So they kind of stop and start. The Lucas Lee fight is literally like literally just keeps going. The only time I can think of that when it actually like stops is when he throws him through the mural and is like, hey, let's go, you know, let's go grab a beer and then yeah. punches him and then the fight just keeps going. I want to talk it's, about that, too, because go for it. Um, I think one of the reasons that the translation from the book to movie works so well is because Edgar Wright does a lot of um, repurposing of scenes from the book. He'll, he'll take something that happens between like two other characters. Like for example, uh, the fight with Roxy, which we'll get to in a minute in the comic books, that fight happens, but it is with Ramona and envy, like the exact same fight happens with the exact same weapons and like almost the exact same conversations but it's it's Ramona and Envy instead of Ramona and Roxy. And in the comics, when uh, Scott meets Lucas Lee, like he basically just walks up to him and he's like, hey, dude, are you Lucas Lee? And he's like, uh, yeah, but I don't really want to fight. I've got some baby carrots in a cooler. So like, do you want to just like talk? <laughs> and so they just kind of, they just like go and hang out. And uh, he eventually beats him by getting him to do the grind and everything. But it's like. He, he like references he, he either references or repurposes, but he never ignores anything that happens in the books. That's pretty interesting. I love like I, I love that you said like you can take something from the source material and either not do it the way that it was intended or just either acknowledge it. But it still kind of adds to the actual material in and of yeah. itself I mean, and fits honestly, within it. I think he made it better with all the, the stunt act, the stunt actors fighting and the, that's a great, great moment. I love that. They're running at each other in slow motion, the crushing of the coffee and the grind is just the grind. insane. It's just like one of the great, like it, it literally looks like, you know, like a fucking Tony Hawk's pro skater video game. Mm-hmm. And the fact the that speed like the speed meter going up, yeah, and they cut back to you know Scott, and he's just like, "Wow!" And then he crashes and just explodes, and it's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> you said this movie doesn't have many quotable lines, but I think that is the stupidest thing you've ever said. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, this movie I didn't has mean that's like more quotable lines than any other movie I've seen. Like the, I, I'm a huge fan. 
Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> let me let me rephrase. Let me rephrase that. I think that what stand what how this movie stands on comedy more so are the situations and the vi- it, and the visual gags. I should there are obviously a lot of very quotable lines in the movie, but the strength and what the comedy that I take away is stuff that I couldn't personally reenact because of the visual stuff. Like when Lucas Lee walks out of his trailer and the Universal theme is playing and he cracks his neck to the bump bump. Yeah. <laughs> and he calls action. That's so good. And then when envy shows up the fact that they that that's like a whole other style like that becomes like a sit down godfather goodfellas like scene yeah with this comedy weaving in or woven Mm. in and it's just like it's total separation of style at least until obviously he he fights brandon routh with his vegan powers but again it doesn't lose you don't it doesn't lose steam yeah when they're in that back room and there, there's just like the tension is slowly building and the music is just like kind of slowly playing in the background and everyone's just staring at each other and trying to butt into the conversation or trying to stay out of the like this conversation. Like everyone in the room has their own motivations for being there. Like Envy just wants to terrorize Scott. Todd wants to kill Scott. Like Julie wants to, in the comic books, there's like a little text box that comes up where she's like, she's like Ramona's from New York and the text box comes up. That's like, is trying to stay in the conversation at all costs. Knives is a fan and like, just wants to look cool. Like I think the coolest part about that scene is just everyone has their, their different motivations and they all play them so well and they all yeah. like build up the tension so well. Absolutely. And they play off of each other. <clears throat> like it, it, the chemistry, like, you know, we can talk about that just for, an hour just like how all of these actors from so many different you know backgrounds in film are able to play to just morph into these roles so well like mm-hmm. brennan brennan routh as <laughs> what's his fucking name todd todd that's right as yeah. todd with vegan powers is so funny and the fact that you know he throws Scott up and you can still hear him screaming as he's like going all the way up. And then he comes back down and then the vegan police, uh, oh my God. <laughs> come in with their fucking finger guns. I can do an episode just... of this podcast on the sequence with the vegan police. Like <laughs> how wild is that? I totally forgot about that when I was watching the movie today, I was laughing so hard. It's just like, I, the fact that again, they're had if finger guns and lasers are coming out and they have yeah. three offenses three offenses for <laughs> I think this has got to be the most quotable sequence in the movie right because you've got uh you've got milk and eggs bitch which is yeah. the best line ever spoken in any movie you've got like uh we have unfinished business he and me I and he don't you talk to me about grammar like <laughs> And then you've got like the cleaning lady on Monday, that whole bit. Yeah, that's right. And like, uh, you're incorrigible. I don't know the meaning of that word. And then the little he doesn't. Box, he doesn't. Yeah, like it's so good. <laughs> and then like he, he punched the highlights out of her hair. Like this scene has so many great lines. So who's after? Um, who's after the vegan? Uh, who's after Todd? It's um after Todd we have Roxy. Right. Because right. they immediately they immediately head out from Todd and go like go out and hit hit the town and that's where they mm-hmm. run into roxy yeah they go to the uh the after party this fight is i i really like the way they handle this fight this um, fight's incredible the like, choreography in it is so yeah. good 
the weapons are so unique, like a giant hammer and belt whips, razor belt whips. And I like that the way they handle, um, like, I mean, Mae Whitman is just so over the top and great in this movie. She's just so crazy. And seemingly like almost the one who is unbeatable in some way that you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. And when they kind of handle this, the fact that Scott doesn't want to hit a girl. And so Ramona grabs his fist and fights for him. Like that's just so well, like it's such a small detail, but so well thought out. It's like, wow, they actually, that's a really good way to handle that. Like that's a good part of his character. He doesn't have the courage to do that. He doesn't like the morals either to do. He doesn't want to fall through it. Ramona just grabs his hands and like does it for him. And the fact that the, her weakness is the back of her knee is Mm -hmm. just like, (laughs) which is another thing that was envy in the, in the comic books, like Mm -hmm. in the comic books, envy's weak point was the back of her knees. Like what's wild about this scene is that this one sequence in this nightclub it condenses the entire fourth volume of Scott Pilgrim and it condenses it into one scene. Like the whole fourth volume of Scott Pilgrim is just like everything sucks kind of, you know, like uh-huh. cause Roxy shows up and like her and Ramona almost kind of like rekindle their relationship in that book. And like Scott and Ramona like are kind of falling apart a little bit. And it's like a whole like over 200 page volume of all this like shitty stuff happening, but Edgar Wright is able to condense that feeling down to this one scene where they have this one little fight, but it stings just as much as the book, which takes place over the course of like maybe two or three weeks. And like, that's really impressive and something special when you can take a three week story from a book, condense it to not even an hour and still leave the viewer with the exact same feelings as they had reading the 250 page book. Yeah. And again, that's just, is all on the strength of the brilliant uh, writing and the fact that the dialogue is done so well where you get information quickly and it's enough information that you, they all you need and you can keep going. Um, it's it, he, he's just such a great writer just in general. Like, I mean, obviously you can talk about his directing style as much as you want, but like, he's also just really good at telling a story and Mm -hmm. the story structure of this movie is very, you know, very much kind of a hero's journey type three act structure story that we've seen before, but again, very effective. And we'll talk about the themes in just a little bit. He's really good at utilizing time. If he only has a minute, so be it. He only has a minute. He'll find a way to get what he needs to get across in that minute. Yeah. And like, there's no fat, like there's no no there's no fat and each fight is so like each battle like we've said it's very different with aspects which leads us right into uh after scott and ramona uh have their fight we get the band battle the amp battle uh with the uh with the twins and this is a scene that is unlike any other movie scene like there it's a literal battle of the bands yeah and they're just it's the power of music and it's like on one hand it's this crazy techno music and on the other hand it's this awesome beck uh alt rock mm-hmm. um it's just and then the visuals of the the animals that come out like the gorilla it's just nuts like it's there's nothing else like it 
it's another thing that was repurposed from the comics. The the like crazy electric gorilla that comes out is like a monster that appears in Scott's nightmare for like one panel of the comics. But Edgar Wright took that and repurposed it into the movie somewhere. Do you know do you know what the Katenagi twin fight is in the comic books? Uh-uh. It's robots. They make they make robots. And Scott's just fighting a bunch of robots all the time. And he just like shows up at a place and then the Katenagi twins will be there with a robot. And he's like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's- I think that's like that's like maybe the the shortest book in the series but still it's an entire book and it's condensed down into this tiny little scene and you get everything you need from it like scott and ramona are being torn apart like they're they're apart and like scott doesn't know if he wants to get back with her but like he gets a life and he like realizes like what what he needs to do and that's like another great thing like this and again we'll get into it but like the video game aspects weave into the actual themes of the movie, especially at the end. Um, we also, this is the time we meet um, Gideon who signs the band, but it's like such an asshole played perfectly by Jason Schwartzman. No one else could play this part. I honestly don't think that anyone could have played it as good as he did. He is out of his mind in this movie and he is so good um, as just this, again, just this pretentious prick mm-hmm. that you just hate from the get-go but you know there's something that we're not seeing like there's so much behind the curtain that we're like what is this guy's deal i know this guy's yeah. like such an evil fucker i've spent a lot of free time of my life thinking about uh possible ways that this movie could have been casted in like an alternate universe and he is him and aubrey plaza are the only two that i can never think of anyone that would even be able to come close to living up to the actual movie. I feel like their attitudes and the way that they play them are so synonymous with them that that's, yeah, that's true. It does fall like right into their ranges perfectly. And like, he's just such the perfect, like final boss, you know, the encapsulation of everything that Scott's been trying to fight for, you know, or fight against, um, and is this is this lead us into the last fighters or one more that I'm forgetting? No, that's that's it. And then we're at, we're on to the finale. And this final scene, this the last like 20 minutes has a lot going on and you know Scott's not in the band anymore and you know he's just like him and Ramona are just completely split because she's gone back with Gideon for reasons that were revealed later and he goes to the after to this party and it's like this mashup of like, you know, obviously video game action, the matrix and kill bill all kind of mixed together with sex, bombs playing in the background and, and like weird corporate music industry undertones as well. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> But not overtly in your face either. I don't think any that's a, a thing yeah. that they could have easily have done with this movie is fallen into the wheelhouse of making the themes or the messages so in your face where it's bothersome. And they, I don't mm-hmm. think they like that. If, if, the critique on the music industry is almost kind of under the radar. Like it's not really a focus. You know, at, at that point, the focus is obviously you know Scott trying to redeem himself, fight against. Gideon and get Ramona back but yeah there is that kind of idea like yeah you know, like, bands bands are signed and then yes yeah, producers just, is just in the music for like getting popular and they sell out to do that and 
uh, they all have to wear the stupid dorky costumes on stage. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> but and then there's the but like the whole thing where he gets the sword of love because he finally admits that he loves um, Ramona and then gets killed and gets to respawn and come back and do it again. And because of that, he learns from his mistake and goes through it all again faster and gains the sort of self-confidence because now he has the ability to believe in himself, accepts his wrongs that he did and beat Gideon in the most badass way possible by kicking his head and he just explodes into coins. Oh man. The I I I love the payoff of Okay, first of all, best line well there's a lot of best lines in this movie but when knives jumps down uh, out of the rafters for the first time and she's like it's time to chow down yeah i like that that's good <laughs> shit um yeah and and i like the payoff of you know at the beginning we see scott and knives are like really good together like when they when they come together to do something like play that video game like they just work off each other so well and then the payoff of them fighting Gideon at the end together and just like being so in sync and like and so good at their doing at what they do when they come together like I I like that payoff like that setup and that that eventual payoff and also Abel like after Scott does the whole thing with his dead self and like that's a great visual like that's just a great gag of editing where it seems like there's gonna be this other badass fight and then it just cuts and they're just walking out yeah. of the, the warehouse like oh yeah let's go get brunch next week uh uh <laughs> and the, the fact that knives and him can accept the fact of the places that they are in their lives and mm-hmm. um can part ways knowing like everything that happened and growing from it and understanding each other. And then they walk into Ramona and him walk into the door together. Um, it's a really good ending. I, I, I think it's a good ending because it's book ended. Yeah. Well, I um, mean like you probably know that originally it was supposed to end with him and knives getting back together. Yeah. Right. Which, which I mean the movie like very clearly is setting that up with like them fighting together at the end and all that stuff. But I think it's, I, I, I think it has an even stronger message when they can be like, yeah, we, we do work good together, but like you are somebody, you're still in high school. You have your like whole life ahead of you. You don't want to get like bogged down dating one 23 year old for the rest of your life. And they both realize that. And they both realize that, Hey, like this is, there's this other person here that you've been fighting for this entire time and like obviously like that's what you want so go do that and that kind of segues us into the final part of this episode where let's talk about what this movie is about the takeaway scott is such like it's a it's really it's a movie about getting over a breakup like really at at its core he's trying to get back and move on from this depressing experience of how this girl dumped him and he was dating knives because of there's that whole line where it's like this is the kind of denial stage and he's so just not able to accept that and not able to really 
move on without that still being attached to him. And then at the end, the fact that he gains self-confidence and believes in himself and you know, there's hints of it in the, in the beginning when people were saying, when he was saying that his ex-girlfriend would tell him that, you know, they broke up over a haircut because he wouldn't, he needed to get his haircut. And then at the end, he finally believes in himself and can make decisions for himself without other people telling him what to do. Because a lot of this movie has to do with people, you know, telling him that he has to do this. By the end, he's able to make the decision and decide for himself what his future is going to be. And learning from his mistakes, being able to apologize to both of them, knowing he fucked up. And that is kind of the whole, you know, big metaphor of him saying goodbye or like, you know, wanting to hang out with his dead self at the end to brunch. It's like I was thinking like kind of seems like there's this whole other that he's able to leave that side of him behind, but he has to fight it. But really that side of him is still him. You know, he says like, Oh, it's me. And I was thinking that like the fact that they don't fight and they're still just the same person shows that he's able to grow and move on. But that old part of him is still going to be, you know, obviously a part of him and with him, but he's grown from it. Okay. I think we might have a little bit uh, different views on, oh, yeah. On the meaning of this movie. And I also think that when we start getting into the themes, it's where this movie almost gets a bit shaky. Um, I do have to admit that there are some it, very weird misogynist undertones in this movie, uh-huh. which I don't think, like, it obviously was not intentional. Like, Edgar Wright is like outwardly a great person, but there are like so many weird moments in this movie that would never happen in a movie today. Um, which are, which are played for comedy and are, are like, they're obviously meant to be funny, but it just gets on that border of being kind of weird. Like when Todd just like punches knives in the face and is like, I'm a rock star baby. Like, yeah, obviously yeah, it's a joke, true, but yeah. it's like, Oh, this is, this is getting kind of weird. And yeah, almost all the stuff with Gideon at the end with Ramona, obviously it's meant to be horrible, but it just kind of starts bordering on like that, like misogynist territory. And I think that's just because of the way, uh, our society has progressed and become more sensitive to these kinds of situations and topics. Um, so I, I don't think it at all hinders the movie, but it is kind of an interesting thing to look back on. Oh, very um, true. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And like it adds it like I when we, when we were doing this episode, I, I kind of forgot about the fact that uh, yeah, that when he punched uh, Ramona, but like. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a rock star, bitch. That's very, very weird and just uncomfortable. Uh, the stuff with Gideon adds to the fact that he's just a shit heel. Um, yeah, but it's well, it's but definitely that it definitely jumps out for I think, sure. I, I think that by the end of the movie, it does all kind of make sense and come together into something that is more meaningful. Because I think that there are two there's two stories going on here. I don't think that there is there are. There's the story of Scott Pilgrim, and then there's the story of Ramona Flowers. And 
both of these are stories that I have come to interpret completely differently over the past nine years of watching this movie. Um, and that's just because I grew up and I'm now like at that point in my life that Scott Pilgrim is at now and I'm kind of learning the same lessons he is. But I think like at the beginning of this movie, Scott Pilgrim, he's a terrible person. He's a person that will use a 17 year old high school girl just for some kind of, just to get this like emotional satisfaction, just to have yeah. something easy. Uh, he'll like, he, he'll mooch off of this, this person who's just letting him stay in his house and he won't even like acknowledge it. He like won't get a job. He's just like living this like weird fantasy of wanting to be a rock star. He's just a bad person <laughs> and like the second someone shows up that's like mildly interesting he'll like immediately break the heart of like this innocent person just for his own gain the emotional stakes of this movie you probably shouldn't really care about i mean it's not like it's it's not huge you know it's not a big deal it's like this guy had a bad breakup and now he's taking it out on the world by being a shitty person um and he has to learn to not do that and it's like yeah great get over yourself like that's yeah <laughs> what most people are probably thinking um but the movie presents it in this like hyper like hyper surreal hyper heightened way that makes it seem more important than it is and i i think that's because like scott is viewing the world like this is how he's viewing the world he's viewing the world as like uh oh my god like everything's coming to an end like this girl is so amazing like she has all these powers she's so mystical like this is just how he's viewing everything and uh we're like viewing this kind of low stakes thing that he should just get over in this hyper realized way, because that's how it feels to him. Cause he has this huge ego where everything's about him and like, I'll take advantage of whoever I need to take advantage just to like be able to chill and live my life. And then over the course of the movie through like finding Ramona flowers, he's not just like opening his eyes to, Oh wow. Like here's this like, Oh, I can go be free. I can go have fun. Like, it's not like that kind of manic pixie dream girl relationship. It's more of a relationship where he slowly starts to realize, Oh, I'm a bad person. And if I don't get my shit together, like I, I won't deserve like to be happy. Like I won't deserve to have this girl. No, no, I, I understand every, and I, I completely agree with that. Um, for sure. It's, I think that what's interesting, I think that, I attribute that more to a kind of sh the strength of the movie that, and you do have a point that you, it's easier, most likely easier for someone who's male to empathize with Scott versus someone who is, who is female. Um, but I feel like it's the strength of the movie that you can, because of the style and because of the tone and all of this, you can understand and it helps a lot also that he's so young. I mean, yeah. he's at a point where he's, um, yeah, he's 22 and he has so much to learn. And he's at this point in his life where 
yeah, he's not really doing anything. He's kind of in this like limbo state. He's just looks, he just, he goes to band practice. He hangs out with his friends and, you know, is with knives. That's pretty much his life. You know, he doesn't know a lot outside of the town. He doesn't know really anything about, um, like, you know, people or relationships really that much at all. And I think that that in and of itself is something that is not the main selling point per se, but it's something that like a lot of people have kind of been in that position, have been in that situation where you're not really sure where you are, what you're doing at this point in your life. Not to the extent of obviously cheating on your girlfriend and like yeah. um, being somewhat manipulative, but we all have those moments in our lives where we're kind of stuck and we're not really we don't see it doesn't really seem like we're doing anything and so this story while to us some people will be like just get over it the fact the way that it's presented and if we kind of look back um reflexively on our own lives it kind of shows like oh well circumstances like this present themselves throughout our lives all the time like the I think that the story gets murky if you are only thinking about it as Scott's story, because it's also Ramona's story. Like we right. talked about where Scott is at at the beginning of this. Like where is Ramona at at the beginning of this? Uh, we find out by the end that she is has also like ended this long term relationship that was uh, not healthy for her at all with Gideon, and uh-huh. she's she's confused. You know she is kind of presented and she says throughout the movie, like, uh, I'm a bad person, you know, like I, I've, I've done bad things. I'm kind of shitty. Uh, but like, I'm admitting that whereas Scott is not admitting that that's, that's the dynamic we have going on. We have someone who, uh, cause we later f- find out, I don't really remember how much the movies go into this, but the books go into it a lot. Like Ramona cheated on most of her exes, and like she did some shitty things like lying and like leaving people behind and stuff like that without telling them. And like this dynamic that's going on is we have these two people that are in similar places uh, where they both have done shitty things, but now one of them is accepting it. One of them is not accepting it and admitting it. And so through each other, I think like Ramona starts to realize, okay, maybe what I've done isn't so bad because like this guy is like, he's like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to date you. I will fight all seven of your exes just to be with you. Like, cause I, I think you're a cool, genuine person. And then, uh, Scott, meanwhile is learning, Oh, maybe all the things I I'm doing are really shitty and I should start make up for like, start making up for that. So you have these two people that are at like different, uh, points on a graph and like those points they're like at two different extremes where one thinks they're really shitty one thinks they're really cool and like when they meet each other they sort of start coming towards like a happy medium of like understanding that maybe I'm not so shitty and maybe I am so shitty and I need to work on some stuff and I think that's what the relationship symbolizes more than any of like that kind of manic pixie dream girl showing up and like showing a guy like how to have fun and like live life and be wild and free. I think it's about two deeply flawed people that are able to come to terms with themselves through each other. Yeah, that's, um, that's really well said. Um, and I've always loved in movies when characters are able to do that, like 
just maybe not explicitly state it, but understand that so there, there are so many flaws and not flaws where it's like it's an awful character flaws where it's like human flaws. Um, and I think that because of that, for both of them, it makes the story more understanding. And and this gets into I'm, I'm going to just kind of seep into what is the one thing that the big takeaway for me for this movie that I, why I love it and why it adds to my love of film, especially this time, because at this point, you know, I've been trying to write my thesis film uh, for Ithaca and I've been trying to do something that this movie actually kind of does, um, you know, really well is that deep within this, you know, crazy stylized, like basically action movie, this action romance movie kind of thing is a story about relationships and about maturity and has has an agenda to say something and is showing it to you in a way that doesn't go beat for beat the way you would really expect it to to get to that end point because there's a there's a clear end point like we start one way with these characters and they have they have to get to here in order to say the message and then everything that happens in the middle is just the building blocks obviously i mean you could say that about most stories but there's a lot of big metaphors in in this movie that add to the theme of, you know, understanding who you are as a, as a person, finding that person that, um, you know, compliments you or just being able to, like we've said this entire time, you know, grow up and move on from something. I love when movies are able to do that, to take, to make you think it's about one thing, and really deep underneath it is something in, entirely different. Kind of like another example that I think uh, it, it should be brought up more, and you may have to stay with me on this, is um, the Lego movie. Because you see something like the Lego movie, and you're like, okay, it's just going to be an adventure story, kids movie about Legos. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, it's actually about a father, a son, and it's trying to connect with his dad through this Lego world activity and being a kid again and having that fun, playful creativity. Uh, I love when movies do that. And I think this movie is just a really good, well-written example of that. And it's kind of like what's one of the, like one of the things I want to put in movies that I want to make. So what, why do you, what is it for you? Like, what is the one thing that, what, what add, what does this movie add to your love of film? If you've ever talked to me about movies, you know that that's something I love. I like what makes what separates normal movies from movies that I think are like elevated and incredible are the movies that I think are elevated and incredible are movies that you can just sit down and watch and have a great time without even thinking about any themes or undertones or anything like that. But then if you want to, and you're a film buff, or even if you're just a person, if you just want to sit and start peeling back those layers, there is so much in there to like pick apart and like understand. And like uh, when there's like the, there's multiple messages and multiple meanings that you can uh, like peel back from that, that, that layer of just like enjoyment. I love that kind of stuff. And um, this movie specifically, it, it just, it, 
it, it really encapsulates that for me because like I said, when I was young, I just watched this. I loved it. I had a great time. Like it's just fun, exciting, uh, in your face. Like it's just great. But then as I got older, I started to understand it more and it like really touched me on a personal level because I think we've all been through things that make us feel like, you know, we're not worth it. We, we think we, we, we think like, man, I, I did like this horrible thing and like now I suck or like I did this awesome thing and now I'm great forever. Um, and this, this movie like really at its core is like you said, it's about maturity. It's saying, you know, you don't have to be like this one thing that you are for your entire life. Like you can look at yourself and say, like, I, I need to be like Ramona flowers and say, Hey, the bad stuff I did, it was bad, but that doesn't make me a bad person. I can grow and I can like work hard on doing things better now. Or you can be like Scott and be like, uh, like I, I, I can't think I'm awesome anymore. Like I have to start, like I have to cool it down and I have to start working on myself as a person because at the end, I mean, this is where I thought our views kind of differed when Scott goes in and he's just like, Ramona, I love you. He thinks that that's going to fix it all. He thinks that admitting his love to this girl is going to, is going to solve all of his problems. But then the whole sequence where he dies and he, and he like has the dream sequence with Ramona. That's him realizing like, I can't keep thinking like the way I'm thinking. I have to like, I have to mature. I have to evolve as a person and I have to earn the power of self-respect so I can make that call to admit that I cheated, to admit that I've been a bad person and overcome myself. And I, I, I think that's just, a very cool message. Uh, I think it's a, it's, it was given to us in a cool way with, uh, two characters in similar situations, but it it very like dealing with it in very different ways. Um, I, it's just, it's just great, you know? And on top of all of that, it's got Kung Fu fights. It's got incredible (laughs) special effects. It's got people blowing up. It's got dance numbers. Like it's just so much, uh, that I, I think anyone can like it if you give it a shot but also I understand if you watch it and you're like oh this is just like about some schlub dude and that doesn't interest me well I saw this review of Under the Silver Lake once that was just like this is the kind of movie that guys will tell you you don't understand because like you it has too many layers and it was like a woman reviewing it and that's kind of how I feel when I preach about this movie is like, I feel like I'm just being like, no, you don't understand the layers, but <laughs> I, I do think there's a lot to it. Um, and I, I understand how on the surface to someone like it definitely does seem like a movie that praises like schlubby guys who don't want to do anything with their life. I think the message can resonate with anyone who cares to like watch the movie and listen to it. But if you don't want to watch it and listen to it, I mean, that's fine. Thank you so much, Sully, for coming on. Thank me. Thank you, Josh Wall, for listening to my endless rambling about (laughs) fictional characters. (laughs) 
All right, that does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Thanks so much to Sully for producing this episode and, of course, for coming on. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter, Frankly, I Love Movies. And you can follow me on Instagram at joshvalejosh21 if you want more fun updates on what's going on in my life. And as always, tune in in two weeks for another episode talking about a special movie with a special guest. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.